Welcome to The Marketing Commute, a podcast that explores the roads taken and lessons learned for the best and brightest in marketing today. I'm Mike Boyd and joining me on The Commute this time are Andrew Baxter, Senior Advisor at KPMG Australia. Hi Mike. Carmen Becker, Partner at KPMG Australia who leads their CMO advisory practice. Good afternoon. And Professor Vince Mitchell, Professor of Marketing at the University of Sydney Business School. Hello. In this episode of The Marketing Commute, we'll be talking with Nicole McMillan. Nicole is the Vice President of Marketing for Mars Wrigley in Africa, the Middle East, Asia and Australia. She's also worked on a number of global food and beverage brands under the Mars umbrella, including Snickers, M&M's, Twix and Skittles. We're looking forward to chatting with Nicole a little later in the episode. All right, let's get the show on the road. So what's caught our eye this week? What Mars has done is made sustainability a business KPI. Now, this is fantastic because it's not often you see it actually translated to the bottom line here and it's a really interesting way of bringing it to life. I remember first looking at sustainability when Unilever washed those birds in the oil spill. Does anyone remember that? And they used the the washing up liquid and it was a wonderful uh, visual way to bring sustainability of business and brands to the forefront. And what Mars have done that's great is not just um, said that they're going to tackle climate change with things like switching to 100% renewable energy or investing in a sustainable future, but also asking their suppliers and people that want to engage with them, such as their communities, to also take a pledge for the planet. So it seems like a fantastic way to not only bring their objectives to life, but to help bring others to the table as well. They've gone very, very big on their objectives. They've set really, mm. really big goals. I think Qantas has done something similar this week where they've said they want to be net zero emissions by 2050. You know, very challenging for an airline, but their key points that they've put out here, you know, switching to 100% renewable energy, investing a billion dollars in more sustainable future, they're, they're, they're big numbers. And I think too, um, you know, the new generations coming through, millennials to some extent, but certainly Gen Z, they are extremely interested in in companies that are doing the right thing and then having these sorts of sustainability measures in place. What I like about this is it's very hard to change big businesses. It's just really hard unless you have a compelling proposition for all of your stakeholders, whether that's customers, suppliers, various stakeholders inside the company. And and what better your compelling proposition than saving the planet? So so I actually think you're one of the spin-offs from these major sustainable initiatives are that, that business process transformation should actually become a little bit easier. And you could potentially learn a lot from being able to move all those stakeholders by such an imperative for the planet. FMCG seem to be doing this very well. We've seen Coca-Cola as well with what they're doing, changing their operations and confirming that certain bottles and um, water bottles, etc. will all be 100% recycled. Maybe FMCG are leading the way here. Yeah, and the other thing about that is that the opinion domino effect that you get, where if the big boys aren't doing this, it gives everybody else below them an excuse to say, well, if they aren't going to do it, mm. yeah, then why should we? So that moral leadership that they're taking undermines that argument for everybody else. Mm. Pushes the pressure down. Yeah. Or maybe small companies have pushed the pressure up. We've seen a lot of brands in the last five years come about with sustainability at their core Mm. as their purpose for being, such as Tom's Shoes or Warby Glasses. You know, maybe they're the ones that are pushing the big guys to actually do more. 
So what I saw yeah, this week was uh, Uncle Ben's rice. Yeah, they, one of the first food brands yeah, to have leveraged Google's visual search technology called Google Lens. So essentially, it's a form of yeah, augmented reality yeah, whereby you look at, yeah, using Google Lens, a yeah, packet of Uncle Ben's rice, and it gives you lots of information about it, including serving suggestions and, and things like that. So nothing particularly new about it. I mean, in, in the food category, there's a barcode on everything. The opportunity here is, does it start to change the ability for people to be able to scan all sorts of foods? Start with FMCG, you know, processed foods, but does it then get people into scanning fruits and vegetables and other things to really understand what the nutritional value is? So it's a starting point about how do you educate people to better understand what they're putting in their mouths. And when I think about it, I think about IOT and think, does this mean now if I scan that, um, it can connect to my health tracker and it can actually then tell me how much I've eaten, what I've in terms of protein, sugar, salt. So maybe I can keep track better throughout the whole day of what I eat through scanning a barcode on a product. Maybe that's, that's right. where it can help. And I think also if you go back to, to our first topic, I think the traceability of food is going to become really important. If, if it can be telling you about that, that this food was made in this factory here and the, the products or the ingredients came from this farm here, I think, again, that's going to be really interesting to people um, using this sort of technology. Yeah, it's a very good point. So apart from yeah, transparency, which is all great, I think there's a playful aspect to this mm. potentially and the cross-sell aspect. Yeah, yeah. So we imagine yeah, you go into your cupboard and you do a quick bar scan yeah, of things. So rather than getting... Uncle Ben's suggestions, what you get is the equivalent of your own ready, steady cook. Yeah, and it suggests what you could make yes. with those three, uh, half an orange, get yeah, Uncle Ben's, yeah, and a tin of tuna. The other side of that example is you can only scan one barcode at a time. Whereas if I can open the pantry or the fridge and with Google Lens scan multiple products yes. in one frame, yes. that starts to completely transform the value of moving beyond the barcode. Now, our guest this week started her marketing journey almost 20 years ago with a Bachelor in Business in Tourism and Marketing and spent the first five years working at Arnott's and then Foster's Brewing. Then in 2007, she joined the Mars Group as Marketing Manager for chocolate brands such as Mars, Dove and Pods. She's since risen steadily through the ranks at Mars to her current role as VP for AMIA, overseeing a team of 120 people across 95 markets to drive strategic growth, particularly for the key emerging markets of India, Vietnam, Saudi Arabia and Kenya, uh, which is about 20% of the world's population. She was also a finalist of the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Asia Award in 2017 and is a founding board member of the Van Wright Foundation, an organisation that raises research funds for a cure for the rare MECP2 syndrome. It's great to have Nicole McMillan on this episode of The Marketing Commute. Welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Now, what kick-started your marketing career? What made you go down the path of uh, FMCG marketing career? Well, it's a, it's a funny story that goes back to my childhood. I actually grew up uh, in northeast Victoria, only about half an hour away from what was then known as the Uncle Ben Pet Food Factory. Um, and I'd always been interested in, in products and, and brands, but it was probably my time as a summer intern in the Uncle Ben's pet care business and, and just seeing how all the functions work together and, you know, the building of, of products and ideas and, and campaigns, I could just kind of became hooked, I guess. And, uh, yeah, and that bug hasn't seemed to have left yet. Just quickly, it's interesting. Many of our first lot of guests have been from regional Australia. 
a couple from country Victoria, one from uh, Tasmania. Why do you think that's been driving so many great marketers? I think for me, you know, growing up in the country, I was still very curious about the world outside. So my uh, mother and my grandparents were Dutch, and so we had quite a few people visiting us. And so I was just really curious about the outside world. And I think if when you're a country kid, I think you either really love the country and all the things it offers, or I think you're either go the path of you're really curious about what's outside. And I think most marketers by nature are curious and, and want to explore the world. And, and of course, you know, to have a marketing career, it's pretty hard to have one in some of our beautiful regional centres. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to hit the big smoke. Now, just, just on that, you've, you've obviously been around the world, that curiosity's taken you around the world. What were those moments when you, your career really did kickstart? When I became the marketing uh, head of the chocolate business for Mars in Australia is probably when I felt that my career really started to, uh, to take off. And I think it's probably a result of when you get into a broader role that has broader perspective and, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be surrounded by some great leaders and, and thinkers who then kind of pull you into some really interesting projects and projects that are outside of the scope of your normal role. For me, that's probably when I started to get a sense of what my potential might be and, and what I might be capable of. And, and probably a few of the people that I worked with helped me to gain a sense of that and I guess gain a confidence in in what might be possible for me you know so I think it's it is a combination of going for a big enough role and getting up into a big enough role but then also having some great people um, around me who really encouraged me is probably when I started to believe more in myself and and actually that's probably you know been a key point for the acceleration. Nicole of those cultural differences informed your experiences on a professional level? Oh, massively. Look, I can't, I can't talk enough about how working across other cultures has just been so fulfilling. And, and I would probably say equally more personally or probably even more personally than professionally because when you, when you work in, in cultures that when you first start, you, you think you might have an idea of, of what that culture's like. But, you know, visiting and, and being a tourist versus actually emerging yourself into a work culture, you really have to turn on all of your senses because language is often um, a little bit of a challenge. So you need to become much more acute and aware of other signals, um, you know, especially with the people that you meet and you're dealing with and, and you have to put aside assumptions. I think the best thing for me in working across all these cultures is you really have to think about the assumptions that you might have. And in actual fact, I would say, you know, we talk about bias a lot at the moment and, you know, unconscious bias. Actually, what's really good is when you're in other cultures, you're much more aware of um, your biases because you realise that you don't necessarily understand or know as much. So you ask more questions. You become, I think, a lot more curious um, because you're not in this comfort zone of, you know, of being in your home home culture. And I think sometimes the danger of our home culture is we tend to assume a lot more. Whereas when you're somewhere, you know, totally new and you know, I've been really lucky even in the last couple of years, I've gone to some pretty, you know, pretty out there places um, from a work perspective. And each time it's different. And each time you have to, you know, try really hard to understand and, and get under what's what's happening. And, um, and yeah, I think that's, you know, that's been a wonderful benefit, not just in, you know, hopefully creating great work and great strategy and, and leading people, but also just as a, as a person and, and being 
curious about the world and how it works rather than just, you know, maybe the news feed that you're receiving um, every day. And our listeners would love to hear some examples of where you've seen that cultural difference or where culture meant perhaps the path you'd taken with a product launch had to be reversed or changed due to that culture. Do you have any examples you can share with us? We've got lots of examples of our advertising that, you know, it's taken us a long time, I think, to learn what are some of the nuances and what are the right things that you say, you know, what absolutely these insights will resonate, do resonate globally because they're so deeply rooted in, in universal human truths. However, the tonality of how you bring that to life and the cultural nuance and local relevance, um, you know, some of those things which seem like they might be a really a small part of the brief or a, or a small part of, you know, the storyboards that you're getting shown, that in actual fact, when you, when you look at the finished product, it can really make the difference of whether, you know, people... In a, in a certain country are going to notice your advertising um, or not. And I, I've got a really funny example of that. In um, We were making a double mint out of China when I was um, the global lead on, on double mint. And there's a bear. We actually um, shot a live bear in this, uh, in this ad. And it was funny because one of my really favourite mentors of all time, Bruce McColl, he was our global CMO. And at the time um, that I was refining the, the final edit, we happened to be in China together. So I, I showed him and I was like, I'm really proud of this. And he's like, I don't think the bear's scary enough, right? He's like, the bear's boring. And anyway, <laughs> so I had to explain to him, I actually think the bear is on the edge from what we know on some of the neuro work we've been doing. I think the bear is on edge, you know, um, kind of for uh, for Asia. So anyway, it was I listened to him, but I decided that probably my more recent experience, I was going to back that. And funnily enough, um, you know, it became our first, we class our advertising based on single source data and it became our first what we call three-star advertising in China on gum ever. And I and I laughed about that later with him about, you know, this nuance of how scary to make a bear really makes a difference. And, and we've seen that particularly when there's humour um, in mm. Skittles advertising as well. Amazing what will land in the Western world on Skittles um, versus, you know, what lands um, in an Asian culture where, there's a much greater need um, for harmony in the collective rather than getting a one-up joke, um, mm. you know, on someone else in the ad, which so much of Western humour um, and especially in advertising uh, is based on. Yeah, they do say if you truly understand how to express humour and tell a joke in a language, then you've understood the language. I believe that's, I believe that's true. I think it's, a, yeah, and I think the tonality of, of storytelling is, is super important. You mentioned there about yeah, one of your mentors, yeah, Nicole. Um, who have they been and, and how have they helped you? I've been really fortunate um, to have some really great mentors um, along the way. So Peter West, who currently leads the uh, Coca-Cola business in Australia. So I've been really lucky to work with him three times um, in my career as, as my direct boss. And, and you know, then he went on to have very senior roles in, uh, in Europe in Mars before returning to um to Australia and I think he really honed my leadership. He pushed me very hard about self-awareness and, and how you're in service to others and, and not making um, assumptions. And, you know, so he, he's been a massive, I guess, North Star for me on leadership and, and also on strategy. So, you know, he was one of the great strategists behind um, a lot of the global sneakers work that was done when he was globally leading that brand. So um, he's been a wonderful mentor. Bruce McColl, who was our, our global CMO, and, you know, it's fantastic to have another fellow Aussie 
um, you know, in the in the most senior marketing job in Mars for many years. And I think the the evidence base that he brought with the partnership with Ehrenberg Bass has been fantastic in the business. But even for me personally, and even though he's retired now, I mean, some of the people that I met through him have have gone on to become you know amazing peers and and mentors and. And then the third one uh, for me is probably Orla Mitchell, who was a senior um, female leader in Mars until recently. And and what I really learnt from her was probably more in, you know, how to bring who you are and and bring your authenticity uh, into into the role, especially as as females, you know. So we know um, in many organisations it's still at the top. We still don't have have enough women. And I think what I really liked um, about Orla was I feel that she showed up really authentically, you know, as a leader, but also, you know, brought a level of femininity rather than, you know, trying to be one of the boys. And and, and that's something I've really valued um, from her as well. But now you're in a mentor position, Nicole. So if, if you were teaching someone to drive their career forward, what would be your first few lessons? Probably my key one is to try not to think too much about yourself. I, I think when we start out in our careers, we're we're so driven to think about, you know, I have to prove myself and, you know, it's all about me showing how good I am or how perfect I am. I I think my sort of lessons on this have been that is to actually think about, is to look around the organisation uh, that you're working for and to think, or, you know, if you're going into, into an organisation in a role and think about where and how can I create impact? You know, so what is it um, that either the, the business needs or a certain team needs and, and what, what is it that I have to offer and, and where is it that I can create the biggest impact? And I think, you know, if you start with that as a question and then and then start to think about, so what is it that I would need to show or work on or develop uh, from a technical expertise perspective, but also thinking about the leadership that's required as well, I think is is, is really critical. And I think... In marketing, it's you've got to be good at both. You know, to get into senior roles within marketing, the ones, the people that sustain really long careers, and and the people that I've really admired have this really nice balance of, you know, clearly you need to have the expertise within your function, but equally, you know, leadership and influence as you become more senior become more important than your technical expertise. I love this idea of nurturing your teams, which you've talked about a bit, and it does play to this idea that you leave your ego at the door as a marketer and look at what the organisation needs. How do you apply that level of nurture when you're looking after large teams across multiple markets? Yeah, so I think when you know when you do look after really large teams, it's about thinking about who are the key influences within the team that if you if you helped or nurtured them, that their their impact is wider than one person, and and you know who are the who are the team leaders. So when I've taken over new regions or new areas, it's it's been really important because you can't unfortunately get to everyone one on one, but it's to have a think about well, you know, if I've got limited resources and time, so who are the leaders, both formal or informal, within those teams that you know if we're wanting to either build capability or drive you know, some kind of positive behavioural um, change or shift in the team, well then, you know, pinpointing who are the key stakeholders within that team where you can have the most um, impact. And I think nurturing other leaders to lead their teams is the way that senior leaders can really make a difference. And and I'd have to say becomes, well, and it has become for me one of the most rewarding things is to see that, you know, whether it's either 
conversations or sessions you've had um, with people on certain topics and then you actually see them playing that out with their team that, that you feel like you actually, you know, you have made a difference and, and made an impact. And technology has a part to play in that as well, doesn't it, by enabling the teams to do their best work? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the collaboration tools that are available now and being able to keep in such constant um, contact with all your teams virtually, you know, whether it's video conference or even simple things like WeChat or, or WhatsApp, um, I think have, have really helped kind of keep relationships really vibrant and, and keep, you know, open, open dialogue. So absolutely, I think it's, it's really helped. Mentioning technology, there's a lot of talk and questions by marketing teams around what is the right technology and where is technology going in the marketing space. Have you seen anything new or different that you could perhaps tell us about or something that you're using uh, that we might not know about yet in Australia? Some of the neuroscience has had the biggest impact on the way that we view our creative campaigns and we're using technology to become more obsessed with behavior we can observe you know as the right feeder into campaigns or the work we're doing rather than asking people what they think um, or you know or attitudinal based so I think you know technology can really help us become much more evidence-based which I think brings you know much more credibility to what we do as marketers and the impact that we can have and the ROI in our businesses when we can actually prove you know whether something is, is working or not and I think some of the the inputs, you know, that we do through some of our neuro testing and our creative process has been really, really valuable. My other kind of point on technology when it's more of a consumer facing piece is probably around what is it in service of? And, you know, I think technology is awesome when it, it can make our customers' lives better or it solves some problem that they have or that that exists. I think one of the dangers for a lot of marketers, and I, I see this in many countries, is that we all get excited by the latest gadget mm. or tech thing that, you know, vendors might be out there pushing really hard. And I think it's, it's a danger sometimes that we can we want to be seen to be using the latest thing. And, and my, my first question is, is always why? And, and what is the technology in service of? What, what problem are we, are we trying to solve? Nicole, this year you served as the jury chair of the Mumbrella Asia Awards and you're also a judge for the Marketing Talent Awards in Singapore. So just carrying on that theme in terms of technology and so forth, what were some of the trends that you saw in some of the best performing campaigns and how did you go about identifying those and using them to, to pick the winners? The ones that really stand out are those that are very clear about what the objectives were that they started out with and, and what is it that they're actually trying to do. So, you know, was it a business objective they needed to achieve or was it a consumer problem or if you, if you go through retail, the retail or who in the ecosystem, what, what were you actually trying to achieve? And so I think the the best work always comes from people that are clear about what they're they're wanting to achieve and then being clear about how they've measured the impact of that. So I think regardless of what category you're judging, I think those ones always um, stand out. But I, I would say for the technology, anything that's technology-based, the things that I've seen are quite similar probably to the earlier comments I've made. So some of the makeup brands doing amazing things with helping people very quickly work out what's going to suit them or not. Um, you know, So stopping people from making purchases that they're going to regret later. So I think that that usefulness piece has really um, stood out. And then I would say the other 
thing, particularly when I, when you're talking about talent and some of the other categories that I've judged, which have been more around um, leadership or or bravery, I think it's people kind of making bold moves in what they in what they're producing and and you know being prepared to try. Um, and experiment and learn from those experiences and it's quite interesting on how many you know winning pieces of work that you see is that in the entries people will actually talk about well the first couple of things they tried they failed but they learned from it and then they tried again and so I think you know seeing that learning journey come through is something that really separates winning awards um, or winning campaigns I think that's what separates the the good from the the great as well. Now, Nicole, you've, you've been involved in some great marketing campaigns yourself. And just touching on that journey that you often go through with great marketing campaigns, there's normally a, you know, there's normally a few things behind the scenes you have to go through, a few challenges you have to overcome to get some of those campaigns to market. I mean, what, what are some of those bigger campaigns you've been involved in and have there been those challenges along the way? For sure. I think the biggest challenges I, I think of often with campaigns are is the internal sell. Um, within an organisation and you know I think it's always it's always fun everyone regardless of who they are in the organisation everyone thinks they're a marketer and everyone thinks they make the best kind of campaign so things often become controversial when you're trying to make change I think when I moved up to Asia originally and I and I took over the global leadership of the Double Mint brand up until then our advertising in Asia had been very very functional and you know we knew that in order for us to really connect with consumers and we we you know have nuts learning from so many of our markets that if you want to entertain or move someone you need to do that with emotion you know not to just telling them about how fantastic something tastes or how fresh their breath is going to be, you know, it's, it's wallpaper. No one's going to notice them. So I would say the biggest challenges that I had on the, a number of the double link campaigns I did was actually the cultural shift that we needed to make firstly as a marketing team, but then also in getting the confidence then from our sales team that this is actually the right way to go and for them to feel really confident that when they're talking to about their retailers about how we're supporting and investing in our brands that actually, you know, yes, this is a big shift in advertising in the way we're doing it, but that we're doing it based on fact and knowledge about what is going to resonate. And so I think that internal stakeholder and that internal um, perspective is, is often one of the things that's actually much harder than trying to solve the, you know, the consumer or the customer problem. Nicole, it's been great having you on the marketing commute. But what does the road ahead look like for you? Well, I hope the road uh, ahead still holds some really interesting and exciting marketing challenges. I'm very much a person who loves leading marketing uh, teams and I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that you know, I'll, I'll still get to experience you know, leading marketing teams. I'm really passionate about the Asian region I think the future of growth there still has so much potential and I really enjoy being an Aussie, um, a very proud Aussie, but also, you know, living outside in Asia. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I get to continue doing what I'm doing um, for some time yet. Nicole, it's been great to have you on board. Um, it's an amazing journey that you've been on in your career, a huge success. And uh, thanks for sharing all those learnings with us on the Marketing Commute. Great. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. So on the Marketing Minute this week, I've taken something from yeah, the Journal of Marketing, which looks at micro-influencers and their role in boosting supermarket sales. FMCG brands often work in trillion-dollar industry characterised by relentless competition, constant innovation, changing customer tastes and price sensitivity. 
In addition, yeah, they must target digitally savvy consumers yeah, who are no longer easily reachable via TV and newspaper advertising. More and more, companies are experimenting with seeded marketing campaigns, which employ thousands of seed agents who receive brand information yeah, and or product samples to create buzz around products with their peers. This particular research focused yeah, on word-of-mouth seeded marketing campaigns, which increased sales in all cases by between 3 and 18%. They estimate that 90% of word-of-mouth took place offline and was universally positive. Firm-created word-of-mouth consistently interacts negatively with advertising by decreasing yeah, its effectiveness by minus 0.6 to minus 0.2 for every 1% increase yeah, in advertising. In contrast, firm-created word-of-mouth consistently interacts positively yeah, with promotional price deals, with sales increasing by 0.3 yeah, to 1.1% for every 1% increase in promotional activity. This finding supports the use of buzz marketing agents for FMCG markets, but not when there are large ad spends involved. So, gentlemen, the question is, buzz marketing works yeah, yeah, for things you can buy perhaps each week, yeah, hence the focus on FMCG, but I wonder if it works yeah, as well for less frequently yeah, purchase your yeah, products. Any thoughts? I think it's interesting because I think the big thing around word of mouth for the last five years has been been about online, not offline, which is what this research talks about. It's been about classic influencer marketing. Similarly, I've read about some of these great examples where it might be a, an alcohol brand, a, a new gin, and, and they've got these seed agents at the bar buying these, you know, this gin and, and just talking in general about how good it is and sort of wandering off um, through the crowd so that the crowds can sort of hear them when not realising that you know they're being that ambassadorial type. So it's a really interesting one. Whether it would work for things like Christmas and, and Mother's Day and some of those seasonal things, I, I'm not sure. I suppose it could in the right category. You know, it might need to be specifically around gifts or gift packs or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's something that would be more... It's the right occasion for purchase. And I wonder, as you say, for a Mother's Day or for Christmas, is it to influence you buying something for yourself or buying something for a loved one? Whereas I think the, the bar example is a great one because I'm in the bar, I'm thirsty, I'm catching up with friends, family, whatever it is. Therefore, that ability there for, to be influenced by a purchase decision of my own is probably going to be more highly valued. And I think there's a lot more ambassadors out there for brands who, who aren't your, your well-known ones. And again, these aren't necessarily online, but they might be, I don't know, someone wearing a certain brand of uh, a sneaker, you know, who, who runs a lot or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and brands are finding these people around this and, and they are calling them ambassadors. Even the, even the sampling in supermarkets of FMCG products where someone might be sampling a new chocolate. I mean, I think they're even calling those people, they don't call them sampling people anymore. They call them, you know, ambassadors. And, and, they've, and they really are helping to, to push that brand. I think for me, I think one of the, the key things is uh, yeah, what piece of content are people going to be talking about? Yeah, so it's not just, hey, we've got a great product and it does great things and please talk about us. And just because I'm talking about it, then you have to engage you with me because yeah, it would be impolite not to. Yes. Yeah, if I've got an interesting story, interesting fact, an interesting piece of content about weather, which is kind of culturally relevant, yeah, yeah, then it becomes part of a conversation I would probably have anyway 
And the brand is incidental year to mm. that. So, so, so I think you know, to drive some of this, you buy great content that is stimulating and has talkability anyway. Mm. Yeah, and then piggyback on that is probably a, a way to perhaps increase you know, the power of buzz agents beyond just talking about any product because you're a buzz agent. All right, so that's it for this episode of The Marketing Commute. Thanks very much to our guest, Nicole McMillan from Mars. Professor Vince Mitchell from the University of Sydney, to Carmen Becker and Andrew Baxter from KPMG, and to our producers, Boyd Britton and Madison Lunds. Also thanks to the studios here at the University of Sydney Business School, and finally to KPMG's Customer Brand and Marketing Advisory Team. You can find The Marketing Commute on all good podcast networks, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can read more detailed show notes and get links from each episode and find out more about our guests and our presenters at our website, themarketingcommute.com. I'm Mike Boyd. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next stop on The Marketing Commute. You have reached your destination.